Let me, uh, just as a reminder to the seniors about senior dinner, all seniors are welcome, but please try to send a text message to Caitlin. Her number's on the sheet. That way we know how much food and cake and all that good stuff to purchase. So hope to see you next Tuesday if you're a senior. Also, if this is maybe your first time to RUF, I want to particularly welcome you uh, and let you know that we're really glad you're here. Uh, we hope that this is a safe place for you to come, uh, as you are, uh, and also we hope this is a safe place where you can figure out, uh, if you're struggling with this, uh, what you believe about Jesus in the Bible. So welcome to RUF, and as always, I would love to meet you. Uh, if I haven't, please come up and introduce yourself, and maybe we can grab coffee or hang out. I'd love to hear your story. Uh, it's hard to believe that we're to this large group, and then we've got one more, and that concludes our semester. Uh, man, it has flown by. And uh, this semester, if you've been coming, you know that we have been studying the Gospel of Mark, and we've been looking at this question of who is Jesus. And we've covered a lot of ground this semester. And one of the things I hope you take away from our time this semester uh, in studying this book is how differently... Uh, specifically Mark, but really the Bible and the Gospels, how uh, differently Christianity is portrayed in this book versus how it's portrayed oftentimes in our culture uh, or in the media or even in many churches today. Because what we've learned, particularly we learned it up close and personal last week, if you were here when we talked about the rich ruler, but one of the things we're learning, and we're going to get a little bit different perspective on the same point tonight, uh, but Christianity is not about strength. It's not about having it all together. Instead, it's about weakness. Jesus came into the world for weak people. Jesus came not for the righteous, but he came for sinners. He came for people who don't have it all together. And so we're going to see that again tonight in a little different way through Mark chapter 14. But before we do, let me pray and ask God to come through his spirit tonight and to help us with this passage. Let's pray together. Father, um, we do ask that you would come again. Thank you for being faithful to meet with us this semester and for all the work that you have done in our hearts and on this campus. Lord, through this passage tonight, I pray that you would convince us that we're never so good that we're beyond the need of your grace. But at the very same time, when you convince, and some of us need to be convinced of this, because we come into this room weighed down by our failure, weighed down by our weakness, and by our sin. Lord, convince us also that we are never so bad that we have never blown it so badly that we're beyond the reach of your grace. Lord, convince us of those things tonight in Mark chapter 14. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all probably heard of restaurant inspections. Uh, in restaurant inspections, that's where the local health department uh, they make their way around to local businesses or restaurants or really anyone that serves food to the public. And basically they have these routine uh, appointments 
where they inspect restaurant and businesses that are serving food and because they are trying to ensure that proper procedures and uh, are being t- handled and taken place when people are serving and handling food. And you've probably all had this experience at some point or another when you walk, walk into a restaurant and maybe someone, this is a nice restaurant, you've heard great things about it, maybe you've even been there yourself and like this is a great place, you walk in, it's clean, you, you, it just appears to be clean and very nice and in your mind, maybe you're not thinking this, but hang with me for purpose of the illustration. You're thinking, this has got to be a grade of 90 or above if the health department were to come. You're not thinking that, but hang with me. You're thinking, this is an A, this is a great place. And, then, and you've had this moment where you walk up to the counter to place your order and you see the grade, right? The little sign that's framed. And instead of seeing a 90% or an A or whatever, you see a 70%. And you're kind of like, I don't know about this. And maybe you even question whether or not you're going to eat there. What is happening in that moment? Well, you don't see the unseen. And here's what I mean by that. You see the dining area. And you see one thing there, and it appears like everything is fine. But what you don't see is the kitchen. You don't see the hands of uh, the cooks that are cooking the food. You don't see the expiration date on the items and the food. You don't see the refrigerator and the temperature of the freezer. And you don't see the cleanliness of where the food is being stored. But when an inspector comes in... They come in and they turn up the heat. They turn up the pressure and they press in to those places that you and I don't see. And when they do, it often reveals weaknesses and reveals flaws. You see, the inspection does not create the flaws. It actually reveals them. And when we come to this passage tonight, the reason why I tell you that story because we have something similar here in Mark chapter 14. At this point in the Gospel of Mark, the religious leaders have turned the heat all the way up. They are pressing in on Jesus and seeking to find a way to kill Him. And what this passage shows us is what happens when the heat gets turned up. It shows us what happens when people start pressing in. And what we see is that the flaws and the weaknesses and the soft spots of the people closest to Jesus start to be revealed for what they really are. The pressure does not create the weaknesses. It simply reveals them. That's what we see in this passage in Mark 14. Three things I want us to look at. The prediction, you can see an outline printed for you. The response and the realization. Those three things. Let's look at number one, the prediction. Look at verse 27. The first thing I want us to see is, if you look at 27, and actually even go up to verse 18 if you have your Bible open. But the first thing we see is that Jesus knows our weaknesses. Look at those verses. Jesus knew that he was going to be betrayed. 
Jesus knew that his disciples were going to scatter and fall away. He knew their weaknesses. He knew their fears. He knew that Peter was going to deny him. And as I was thinking about this, my mind went to Psalm 139, one of my favorite psalms. And you're probably familiar with this psalm, or you will be when I say it. God created your inmost being. And then the psalmist says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Friends, God knows you as if you were the only person created on the entire planet. Think about that. God knows you so intimately and so well, it's as if you were the only person created on the entire planet. And that same psalm, it says that God knows when you rise and when you put your head down to sleep. He knows what keeps you up at night. He knows your dreams that you have for your life. He knows what makes you anxious. He knows what causes you pain. He knows your heartache. He knows your anxieties. He knows your passions. He knows those specific places in your life where you are prone to fail. He knows your weaknesses. Think about that for a second. On the one hand, when you hear that, and when I hear that, and I think about being known that way, uh, that is an incredible comfort. Because what we all want, and if you've been coming to RUF, you'll hear me say things like this, what we want more than anything is to be known intimately and all the way to the bottom. And so there's something incredible about that if you think about it, but there's also something deeply terrifying about that as well, isn't there? For example, let's suppose tonight you head out of RUF and you walk back to your dorm and you walk and you go past the grove and as you're walking back to your dorm and you're passing the grove, you are carrying in your hand this document. It's probably more like a book, a thick book. And your name is on the front of that book and inside the book contains everything that you have thought said or done this past week. And as you're walking past the grove on those picnic tables, there near the front, you see some people that you know, some of your friends, and you walk over and you start talking to them about what you're doing this weekend and who's going to Double Decker and whatnot. And then you leave and you go back to your dorm, and when you walk into your dorm room, it hits you. The book. Oh no. The book. Where is it? And so you take off as fast as you can out of your dorm room and you're running back and praying that that book is in the grove and that no one has seen it. And as you're sprinting, you're right about the union and you see everyone huddled around that book. And they're looking at it and it stops you dead in your tracks. And what do you do? Well, it's simple. You turn around, you run back to your dorm as fast as you can, and you pack your stuff, and you get in your car, (laughs) and you drive off of this campus, never to show your face again at the University of Mississippi. You see, that's the painful truth, isn't it? 
Friends, think if we had a screen I put behind us and all of our thoughts, all of my thoughts, words and deeds from this past week were put on this screen, you would have nothing to do with me. And likewise, if I knew where your heart was all week and the things that you had thought about, I would probably have nothing to do with you either. But what if God is different? What if God doesn't repay us according to what we deserve? What if God knows all the way to the bottom, all the information about us, and yet He doesn't use that against us? I love Tim Keller here. He says that you don't mind looking good when you, or you don't mind people looking at you when you know you look good. Think about that. Girls, you know when you're wearing that special dress, that new dress. Guys, when you're wearing that brand new suit, you know you look good, and what? You don't mind the scrutiny. You don't mind people looking at you. Christianity comes and says, spiritually speaking, you look great. Because you have some good clothes. You are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So much the righteousness of Christ that you aren't afraid if God sees you on the inside. And you aren't afraid if others look at you and see you. Not only that, you're not afraid to bring your failure into the open. You're not afraid to be vulnerable and actually deal with what's on the inside because Jesus gives you your identity. Because Jesus gives you your confidence. His righteousness gives you your certainty about life. Do you see how powerful this is? Think about that. Can't you see that if we really believed this, it would totally change our life? Friends, Jesus is not surprised by Peter's worst moments. No, it doesn't catch him off guard. He predicted it. He knew it was going to happen. And guess what? Though Peter turned his back on Jesus and denied him, Jesus did not turn his back on Peter. And you see what this means for you, don't you? Friends, some of you need to hear this. Jesus is not surprised by your worst moments either. Think about the worst moments you've had in your life. Jesus is not surprised. And you know what? And he doesn't turn his back on you. Even though you might have turned your back on him. Second point. The response. Look at verses 27 through 31. In this verse, as we see Jesus is confronting Peter, and he looks at the disciples and he says, notice, you will all fall away. And look at Peter. Peter, he very clearly, it's like, whoa! I mean, Jesus, you've got the wrong guy here. Very specifically, I will never fall away. All these other guys, they might fall away, 
but I've got your back. I'm going to be with you. And then Jesus basically looks at Peter and gets really specific and says, Peter, you're so full of yourself. You are so self-absorbed and you don't even know it. Because before the rooster crows, you are going to see what a selfish coward you really are. And there's actually significance in the three times. The three times, that that three is the number of completion in the Hebrew mind. And so when something is done three times, it is complete. What's the point? Well, in a few verses, we see that Peter is a complete failure. You see, here Jesus is confronting Peter's pride. He's confronting Peter's overconfidence and his arrogance. And it reminded me of an old movie, uh, Anger Management. And I'm sure if you've seen that movie. Uh, But there's this great scene, one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Uh, It's basically a movie about a psychologist, Dr. Rydell, uh, who is counseling Adam Sandler, who's Dave in the movie, uh, and helping him manage his anger. And in this one scene, he looks at Dave and basically says there are two kinds of angry people in the world, implosive and explosive. He says the person that has explosive anger, that's the person who's at the store, they're at the checkout line, and they're just screaming and berating the cashier because they won't take their coupons. He said, but then there's the person that's implosive, And that's actually the cashier who day after day and week after week just takes that berating and getting yelled at until finally they cannot take it anymore and they explode and they pull out a gun and gun down everybody in the store. And he looks at him and says, Dave, you're the cashier. And if you remember the scene, Dave says, no, no, I'm the guy in the frozen food aisle. I promise. I'm the one calling 911. That's not me. I promise. That's exactly where Peter's at. You see, Peter's response to Jesus is, that's not me. I am not that guy. And see, like Peter, we pretend to have it, our lives more together than they really are. We refuse to admit our weakness. We refuse to be vulnerable. And it starts to play itself out in our life when we say things like this. Just like Peter. I will never do blank. I will never or would never do blank. Whatever you fill in the blank with, only to find ourselves doing the very thing that we are condemning other people for doing. I will never click on that internet site again. I will not drink too much this weekend. I would never get drunk and sleep with someone that I don't know. I will never count calories again. You see, Jeremiah 29 says that the heart is deceitful above all else. And friends, if you are at a point in your life where you are saying, I will never, 
then you're not in a good place. And you don't understand the human heart. Because you remember a few weeks ago we talked about Mark chapter 7 and the fact that the Bible says that the seeds of every sin reside in our hearts. We are capable of a lot more than we think. Becky Pippard wrote a book called Hope Has Its Reasons and she's talking about this point here with Peter and she says that Peter doesn't understand the basic way in which Christianity operates. Listen to what she says. Here is where we Christians part company decisively with our modern culture. Our modern culture says ignore your self-doubts. Feel only positive thoughts about yourself. But I say the opposite. Pay attention to all those lurking doubts. Listen closely to the nagging discontent. It is important to find yourself sure, but those who want to be the best must face the worst at first. It's only in giving up on ourselves that we can ever go beyond ourselves to find ourselves. Friends, that's Christianity. Christianity is about coming to the end of ourselves in giving up hope and everything else and resting in Jesus. Thirdly, the realization. Look at verses 66 through 72. Peter starts to realize his weakness. It's been a couple of hours since he looked at Jesus and said, No, I'm never going to do that. And now we see Jesus' words coming true. Because a servant girl and some bystanders basically look at Peter and say, That's him. This is one of Jesus' closest friends. He's been with Jesus Three times they confront him, and every single time Peter looks at them and says, Jesus who? I don't know him. No, I'm not part of the men that were close to Jesus. Why in the world would Peter do that? Because he's afraid. Because he's afraid. And his fear is driving his denial. And I want to suggest tonight, and this is a little bit of a side comment, but I want, I, I want to talk about this for a second. Fear is driving much of our behavior as well. Fear is also driving much of our denial of Jesus, isn't it? For example, think about this. Why do you lie? Why do you spin everything in your life to make yourself look better? Why do you hide the truth? Well, because we're afraid. We're deeply afraid if someone started to see inside of us, even just a little bit, that they would have nothing to do with us. That they wouldn't want to be our friend or they would push us away in some way. Why don't we speak up for our faith? Why don't we speak up for injustice and for righteousness' sake? Because we're afraid. We're afraid of the backlash that might come if we do. Jesus calls us to live differently as Christians, if you're a Christian tonight. But oftentimes, instead of pursuing holiness, we just simply blend in with everyone else around us. 
Why? Because we're scared. We're scared that if we were to pursue holiness, that we might not fit in. Or we're scared that we might not get the approval from a certain group of people that we really want approval from. And so because of that, we're willing to do anything and everything in order to be in. And like Peter, when it starts to cost us to follow Jesus, we start to push back and push against because we get scared because it might mean that we have to lose something and that we might actually have to give something up. You see, for Peter, it was his life. And my question is, what is it for you? What is the thing that when it starts to cost you that you pushed back against because you're afraid that you might lose it? Look at verse 72. This is when it all starts to turn. It says, Then Peter remembered the words of Jesus, that Jesus had spoken to him, and he broke down and he wept. Friends, this is the point of the story. The point of this passage is that Peter's tears were his, in realization that he was weak. When that finally came home to him, Peter was exactly where Jesus wanted him to be. You see, Peter finally realized that he needed help. That he needed a Savior. That he needed Jesus desperately. But I think the real beauty of the story is also in the grace that is revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to draw on a couple of other passages to kind of bring this together. But we see two incredible examples of the grace of Jesus. Uh, and one in the Gospel of Luke. In the same account, after the third denial that Peter makes, Luke inserts this one little phrase and it says, Jesus looked at Peter. And then Jesus, Peter went away and wept bitterly. Now think about that just for a second. Can you imagine what that would have been like? You looking Jesus in the eye and saying, I will never deny you, and then you do. And then after you deny him, Jesus looks at you and you make eye contact with him. Can you imagine what that would have been like for Peter? But friends, I don't think it was a look of condemnation. I think it was a look of grace. Secondly, and the reason why we can draw that conclusion is in John chapter 21... Jesus is on the Sea of Galilee, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Peter, and he looks at Peter, and if you remember this, he says, Peter, do you love me? And guess how many times Jesus asked him that question? Three. You see, Peter had denied Jesus three times and shown himself to be a complete failure. But yet, in John chapter 21, Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Revealing that Peter was completely forgiven. That Peter was completely loved and completely restored. Can you imagine the comfort that that must have brought Peter, who had just gone through 
the biggest failure of his life. And friends, that should be very comforting to you tonight in the midst of whatever failure that you find yourself in. And what's interesting is when he received this grace from Jesus, Peter didn't say, oh, I can do whatever I want. I know that Jesus is going to give me grace, and so I, you know, I'm just going to go and, and just live life however I want. No, when Jesus gave Peter this grace, it changed him. So much so that he saw himself for who he really was and he repented. And did you know it changed him so much that Peter went on and became a pillar in the early church. He wrote two books in the New Testament. And when it came time again, when he was asked the question about Jesus and who he was, Peter did not deny him. But he said, he's the Christ. And Peter was then martyred and crucified, history tells us, upside down because he did not count himself worthy to be crucified like his Lord. You see, God couldn't use Peter until he fully realized how weak he was. God couldn't use him until he came to the end of himself and admitted his weakness because it's only by admitting that we have no power that we get any power. Why is that? Well, because the Bible says God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And when you read a passage like this and we see what happens in Peter's life, we are tempted to think, wow, look at Peter. God can use a guy like Peter. Even a guy like Peter can be used by God to do big things. And if that's what you're taking away from this story you have totally missed it. Because the point of the story is that it's only a guy like Peter that can be used of God. You see, it's only as we undergo a similar path of weakness and brokenness that we have part in the kingdom of God. I heard a story last week uh, a tragic story about a 26-year-old woman who had an aneurysm out of nowhere. Uh, she was the mom also of a two-month-old baby. It was pretty severe. She was fortunate to be alive. Uh, it left her crippled, and she was barely able to speak, but she, started, she was able to type, and she started a blog in order to share her experience. And one of her blog posts, she starts to... Uh, write about her husband Jay's love for her in the midst of her helplessness. Listen to what she writes. To say that Jay is the love of my life would be an understatement. Throughout this whole ordeal, he has encouraged and comforted me like unlike anyone else. In addition to going to every therapy session, he flosses my teeth, he puts on my lipstick, he feeds me all my liquids and medications through the tube. He shaves my armpits and legs. He lifts me on and off every machine at the gym. He brushes and blow dries my hair. He puts on my deodorant. He takes me to the bathroom every single time I must go. And he also tells me how beautiful I am and that, and that I am the best thing that's ever happened to him. And then listen to what she writes. She writes, 
She says, true love is healing. And it takes you through your darkest valley. And it loves you while you are there. True love is healing. And it takes you through your darkest valley and it loves you while you are there. I can't think of a better summary of this passage than that one. True love, the love of Jesus himself, takes Peter through his darkest valley and loves him while he is there. Likewise, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what failure that you are experiencing or having or have experienced. Maybe something that you have not been able to forgive yourself for. Jesus, the love of Jesus, takes you through your darkest valley. And he loves you while you are there. Friends, it is that love that melted Peter's heart and restored him. And it is that same love of Jesus that melts your heart and restores you in the midst of whatever failure that you find yourself in tonight. Let's pray.